Well, good afternoon. Glad you all had lunch. I'm happy I had lunch. I know that can make you tired. I'll do my best to fight off that sleepiness, but you've got to do your part too. That's how it goes. Synergistic. All right. Um, so we are going to talk today about whether or not you have a reptile-like ancestor. And I did that thing again where I made the title question. One time um, I gave a presentation at a high school, um, Christian high school, and I said, uh, was there a worldwide flood? And I just said no, and then got off the stage. Uh, or sorry, I mean, yes. I, wow, that joke did not work the way I thought it was going to go. That would have really been a surprise for them. Um, no, and then I got back up and gave the rest of the presentation. But um, now, I mean, you know where I'm going with this, I would assume. Um, but maybe you're sitting there and you're like, what are we talking about? Because this isn't something you normally hear people talk about, right? Um, you may hear people talk about your grandmother or your Viking ancestors or whatever, but it's very rare that someone talks about um, you having a reptile for your ancestor. Um, I'm going to show you a little video, though, if it works. Your skin and teeth. Ferocious. Look at those teeth. Your hair. Even your sense of hearing date back to ancestors that walked the earth over 200 million years ago. We're related to egg layers. We carry the genetic signature inside of us. It's time to meet your inner reptile. Wednesday, April 16th at 10, 9 central, only on PBS. There you go. Yeah. Um, so this is actually something people talk about um, on PBS and uh, in scientific circles. Um, this has been called the crown jewel of evolution. This is the single best um, transitional sequence of one class of animals into another, especially vertebrates um, in the fossil records. This is what evolutionists um, will use as one of the best evidences for um, very large-scale changes happening in Earth's history. Um, this book right here, Evolution Slam Dunk, Subtitle, if you can't read that, says why the reptile mammal transition proves macroevolution and how anti-evolutionists ignore it. Um, it's by James Downard. I picked up a copy of this book the other day, bought it off of Amazon. Um, I'm making my way through it. I don't recommend it, um, not because of the fact that it's wrong, but mainly because he's not a very good author. I don't, I don't think he mind me saying that. I, I'm sorry. It's just, it's really dense. It's hard to get through. Um, I mean that in the nicest way, but um, he's actually... Um, He's not a scientist. Uh, he's got a um, uh, bachelor's in history, and he just really got interested in the creation evolution issue. Um, but he's, a, uh, he's an atheist um, writing out of Britain, and um, the book is, is very, uh, very opinionated. Um, he's got a lot to say, and he makes sure that you hear it. Um, so I, uh, like I said, I don't mean anything mean to him. It's just it's a very hard book to get through. Um, here's a quote from the book. The reptile-mammal transition is the most compelling case for macroevolution. Besides the fossils covering millions of years, there's a wealth of corroborating science data from developmental biology to the latest genetics. Now, how do those skeptical of evolution, whether they call themselves creationists or favor intelligent design, deal with all that evidence? They don't. That's what he says. And you know what? For the most part, he's actually right. I mean, like we just talked about, how many of you are going around discussing whether you have a reptile ancestor or not, right? It's not something that normally gets talked about. And even in creationist uh, literature, it's not something that regularly gets discussed. Um, now, in the defense of creationists, this is the only popular book I could find on the topic. I know of one from the 80s that's semi-technical. Semi it's a fantastic book, actually, by Thomas Kemp. Um, but as far as I know, this is the only popular treatment of the subject anywhere. So you'd think if it is the crown jewel, there'd be more people talking about this. But there are not. Um, it's mainly in the technical literature. So here I am today, going to take the technical literature to you. And um, we're going to talk about uh, what evidence they have for this and um, what this means for us, and how we understand this as creationists. So we're going to look at the animals that are involved with this transition, 
Um, we're going to start with our pelicosaurs. I don't know. Look, I, I know. These names are crazy. They're going to get crazier. I understand. Um, don't focus so much on the names. You'll see what we're talking about as we go along. Don't get turned off by the names. Um, but there are some crazy ones. We're going to move into our therapsids. And even narrower, we're going to get into our cynodonts. Um, and then to our mammalia forms, which are as close to a mammal as you can get without being a mammal. And we're going to look at some trends that happen in, supposedly in their evolution. So there's three big things, two I listed here. Posture, the way that they hold themselves up, the way they walk, and their jaws. Um, we're going to look at some other stuff too, including the palate. Um, but before we can look at this, we've got to ask ourselves, what's so special about being a mammal? By the way, if you don't recognize... Um, I mean, the video, I think, made it pretty clear that um, you are considered a mammal in this thinking, and so you would have evolved out of these animals, okay? So they're also saying ancestors not only to mammals, but to people. So what is so special about mammals? Now, you probably remember at some point um, learning about how they have fur and milk, and they give birth to live young. Just don't tell this guy. Um, But they um, actually have a lot of other features that maybe you don't recognize as being um, special to mammals. Okay, so we're going to go through these. I'm just going to list them right here. There's an erect posture, a flexible lumbar region in the vertebrae. Your lower jaw is only one bone. And there are intricate inner ear bones. So let's talk about erect posture first. This is a Tasmanian wolf. Thylacine, recently extinct animal, um, went extinct in the 1930s in Tasmania um, because of uh, people killing them for thinking that they were going after their sheep, which in their defense they were. But um, the uh, erect posture thing goes across mammalia, even in the extinct mammal forms, fossil ones. Here's a Colombian mammoth, and uh, you can see that those legs are held directly beneath the body. It's very nice when you want to walk or run. If you are a reptile, living reptile today, um, like a lizard, you walk like this, right? And you drag your bellies as you go. Um, They can push themselves up sometimes to run fast. Crocodiles can do that. Um, But in general, they're kind of dragging their bellies around. Mammals don't do this. Um, That's very nice. And even living mammals are the same way. Now, the next thing we need to talk about because actually some other animals do have erect posture. Dinosaurs, for instance, do. Um, but they're so far removed, evolutionists would consider that analogy. They evolved that on their own. It's not from a common ancestor. Let's look at the lumbar region in the vertebrae. So here is an amphibian called Seymouria. You can see that the backbone just... I keep trying this laser pointer, but that screen's so bright it never shows up. There it is on the ceiling, but okay. Um, you can just imagine my finger pointing at it. So you see the skull on the left side and the tail on the right side, right? And all the vertebrae in between all have ribs on them. That's like an amphibian. You can see the same thing in a dinosaur. Um, there are two dinosaurs there behind my kids. The kids are not the dinosaurs. Um, those are two therizinosaurs um, from Utah. Um, there's, uh, the smaller one is Valcarius. The biggest one is Nothronychus. And you can see that when you follow the, the rib cage, right, it goes all the way back to the hips. And when you look at a mammal, the rib cage stops about halfway down the body, and you have these vertebrae that don't have big old poking ribs sticking out. That's the lumbar region. And what that allows mammals to do is we can do some really flexible bending. If you've ever seen a cheetah run before or a dog run, when they run, they arch their backs really far as they're running and they stretch out and condense kind of like a slinky, right? Um, Reptiles don't do this. When you watch a lizard or a crocodile run, they're like, ah, they run like that, where they kind of like flail themselves back and forth laterally. And same deal with swimming ones. A swimming mammal, a whale or a dolphin, it goes up and down. Its tail goes up and down like that, right? But in a shark or a crocodile, the tail goes side to side like that. Um, So mammals are constructed to have that up and down undulatory movement. So that is the lumbar region. Also, mammals have a one bone lower jaw. You've heard um, from scripture of a one-woman man, right? Talks about that in um, 1 Timothy. Well, we're going to talk about a one-bone lower jaw. So the lower jaw of mammals and your lower jaw is a single bone. Now you say, well, there's one on each side, so there's two. Okay, yeah, we mean like the one jaw is one bone. This is not the case for other vertebrate animals. 
here, if you look up there, there's going to be a tyrannosaur um, skull, teratophineus. And if you look very carefully, you can see the teeth on the lower jaw are on one bone, but there's a suture line that runs through like the middle of the jaw, kind of goes straight down. And there's another bone, and then there's a whole bunch of bones back there, all all these different bones that make up the lower jaw. Really clear in this diagram right here, you can see the different colors making up the lower jaw bones. There's the dentary and the serangular and the splenial and all these fun words to say. But in a human, there's only one bone down there in the lower jaw. And then the last thing we need to talk about for mammal distinctiveness is our ears. This is a cool diagram. Oh, does that work better? Is this the kind that's going to blind an airline pilot? Oh, you can kind of see it. See right there? Thank you. Um, So you can see this is the ear of a human. This is from Answers in Genesis, by the way. Um, Really cool diagram. Goes in the ear canal. You have your eardrum, your tympanic membrane right there. It's like a little tympany drum. And look at these things. These are the inner ear bones. There's three of them. You can see them right here, all lined up. You may have heard of them as the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup, um, the stapes incus malleus. Um, These connect together to allow for sound to be transmitted from this drum to your inner ear, and then eventually goes to nerves. Your brain can understand it and everything. It's really, really cool. These bones, by the way, are the only bones in your body that do not grow as you age. They are... That size, when you're born, they stay that size, essentially that size your whole life. Really intricate design in these things. I've seen a lot of creationists give really good talks on this about how well-designed the inner ear is, and it's true. It is incredibly well-designed. Okay, so we've got to understand those four things are unique. Where are they coming from in the evolutionary model? Well, we're going to start with our pelicosaurs. These are the more reptile-like of the what we call non-mammalian synapsids. I'm going to use an easier term, reptile-like mammals. Um, A lot of people don't like that term. I don't particularly like the term, but it's easier to say. Um, So these are things that are kind of in between a reptile and a mammal. Let me show you an example. This is uh, Cotillorhynchus. You can check out the um, very large forelimbs on this thing and hind limbs, the big old barrel-shaped chest. Where is the head? That. It's got a tiny head. A very, very, very tiny head. Um, I don't like to, you know, I'm not making light of God's creation. He designed well, but this is a surprising animal. And I think it's okay for us to laugh at things when they're kind of silly sometimes. Um, But notice the posture in this animal. It's humerus, it's femur. These bones are like parallel with the ground. So it's walking like this. It's not walking upright. Notice this is a very large animal. Um, You could definitely ride this thing. Um... And, uh, yeah, the heads really are that small. Tiny, tiny heads for these animals. Um, the more you move along, though, you see some more mammal-like ones. This is Dimetrodon. I'll bring out the skull again. There we go. Here's Dimetrodon. You can see him up in the picture, too. Big, big, big skull. How do we um, know this is, has to do with mammals at all? What you can see in the jaw, or the skull, sorry, you have your nostril, you have your eye opening, your orbit, and then this hole back here. Um, Among living animals, only mammals have that hole in the back of the skull. That's very unique, and yet we're finding it in these reptile-like mammals, or mammal-like reptiles. And then here's just another example how these things might have looked in life. That's Cicodontosaurus, a relative of Dimetrodon. So these things look pretty reptile-like overall. I mean, you look at that, you're like, that basically looks like it's just a really big reptile. Well, we got to start talking about our therapsids. Now, what I'm going to do is show you the evolutionary story from pelicosaurs to mammals. I cannot possibly talk about every single animal involved. I will begin to show you why. There are a lot. And these just represent suborders of these animals or infraorders. There's tons of species of these things. Of Dicynodonts alone, there's, sorry, of Dicynodonts alone, there's hundreds of species. Um, These are very, very interesting, um, very fascinating animals, but you'll notice um, what we're going to talk about is an increasing um, direction of looking more mammalian on this side and more reptilian on that side. That's what we're going to see. But before we do that, I want to take a quick break, because here's the thing. We can get caught up in trying to disprove evolution or trying to prove creation. Um, 
But we need to just appreciate what God has made. And God is so incredibly creative. And most exciting thing to me about paleontology is being able to look at the fossils, pull up something that we haven't seen before, and say like, wow, this thing shows the glory of God. Look at this creature. This is moss chops. Moss chops is an amazing creature. It really looks very strange. Um, You can see it's got a big, huge chest right here and big arms. It would walk around like a bodybuilder, kind of, everywhere it goes. And its head is thickened on top, probably because they were butting heads with each other. Um, And this animal, by the way, once again, big enough, you could probably ride it. Um, It's a large animal, probably the size of like, I don't know, medium-sized cow kind of thing to small cow. Um, Big, big animal and really impressive. You get even more interesting things. There's a dicynodon. By the way, this this guy is a um, phytosaur. He doesn't have anything to do with our story. This right here is a dicynodon called Plasurius. I've got a skull of that too. Not Plasurius, but another dicynodon right here. These guys are really interesting. There are only two teeth in most of their mouths, tusks. The rest of the mouth is a beak, like a bird. How weird is that? It's like a bird walrus pig, right? Um, but there are hundreds of these things, okay? Um, there's the story of uh, out in South Africa where a lot of these fossils come from, the Karoo Basin. And um, there's a story about a professor and his student walking out to the Karoo Basin to look for fossils. And the professor steps right over the skull of a dicynodon, a Lystrosaurus. And the student says, whoa, 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 you just missed it. You just stepped right over the skull of a Lystrosaurus. And he said, look, if I stop every time I see a Lystrosaurus skull, I'll never get anything done. That's how common these things are. They're just everywhere. Um, really, really interesting animals. And then right here, we've got a Gorgonopsian. I'll show you that. That's Lycanops. Its name means wolf face because it kind of looks like a wolf when you look at it. It's got saber teeth. These animals could open their jaws almost to a complete 90-degree angle for an incredibly wide bite. Uh, very, very fascinating special creations of God. Dinosaurs get all the attention in the fossil record. But let me tell you, these things are just as amazing and you know, it doesn't get any better than a Steminosuchus. This is my favorite animal of all time. I mean, look at him. It's so interesting. God built this thing. And you think like, oh, that's probably just people like piecing together a few bones. No, here's the skull. That's what it looks like. That's really what it looks like. It's got these bony flange things sticking off the side of its skull. It's got um, kind of like a frillish kind of thing in the back. It's got these things that look like antlers almost coming out of the top of its head. And then, I mean, nothing's on my nose, so I'm going to have a nose horn, right? Um, just pop it right on there. And you've got an Estemenosuchus. It's a fantastic animal. This animal, by the way, two species of this. The one that looks a little bit more normal is bigger. It's the size of a hippo. It's a huge animal. Um, this guy's a little bit smaller. Once again, probably like um, young hippo, pygmy hippo kind of size. It's, it's a big animal. Um, and I want us to appreciate, like, these are the wonders that are waiting for us in science, things to discover that we had no clue existed. And they display the glory of God in a fantastic way that, I mean, we just, we never would have guessed this. That's one of the ways I, I get frustrated sometimes when I see a science fiction movie, because they try and create these wild creatures, and they're just variants of animals we already have. You know, they can't make anything better than God already made. And I think we need to stop and appreciate that. It's a good thing to go to a museum or a zoo and just wonder at what God has made. Okay, our pause is done. It's time to talk about becoming mammal-like again. All right, so we move from our, thera- our uh, pelicosaurs like Dimetrodon here to our therapsids. And so this is um, considered one of the more primitive therapsids. This is Biarmasuchus here. Um, the skull is more mammal-like. There's different types of teeth in the mouth. The uh, hole back here is getting bigger in the evolutionary model. The toes are more mammal-like. They're getting the, the mammalian feature of having um, a certain number of finger bones in each uh, digit. And the posture is more mammal-like. Those other guys are really sprawling. This one's kind of like semi-in-between sprawling. Let's move on a little bit to our Gorgonopsians. There's Lycanops again. This animal is about the size of a weasel, maybe like a marten or a fisher if you know what those are, like bigger weasels. There's all kinds of sizes of weasels. They're all over the place. Um, So lycanops here. Uh, You'll notice the posture is much more erect. The skull's even more mammal-like. This is what this animal might have looked like in life. 
Unfortunately, we don't have any skin patches of these things. We have no idea if, what, what their skin look like. Um, so a lot of times they just give them naked skin as a guess. Sometimes they put little fur on them. Um, we just really don't know. And this animal is interesting because these guys, this whole group of animals, um, their arms and legs allowed for them to switch from a more sprawling to a more upright posture very easily, probably when they're running. And so you can imagine an evolutionist thinking about this and saying like, yeah, this is what I expect to see, right? An animal switching from a sprawling to a fully erect posture. I told you the one guy was the size of a weasel, but some of them could get pretty big. You can imagine that thing chasing you would be kind of scary. And then we move into our cynodonts. These are the most mammal-like of all the non-mammalian synapsids. They're all the mammal-like reptiles. Why are they so mammal-like? Why do evolutionists say that? Let me show you a few things. Number one, check out the lower jaw. The lower jaw is almost entirely one bone. There's a few other little bones back here. This is Procynosuchus, one of the earliest cynodonts in the fossil record, um, according to evolutionists, one of the lowest ones in the fossil record, according to creationists. And um, they actually are forming something called a secondary palate. Now, we have not talked about this yet, but mammals are really special. Another reason they're special is because they have a bony palate, a second palate in your mouth. And that's what allows you to breathe through your nose and eat at the same time, which is a pretty cool trick. You can go and impress all the iguanas, you know, like, look what I can do, right? Um, it's very helpful for mammals when they're suckling. Nursing babies, um, baby mammals, they really appreciate that ability. And what you see in these cynodonts is, if we can go back to the image here, that secondary palate there, it's not totally closed, but the bone is growing up over it. And so the evolutionist is saying, this is looking like the formation of a bony palate starting to happen. Now let me show you Thrinaxodon, which is a cool one to say. Its skull is even more mammal-like. Almost the entire lower jaw is a single bone. There's just a few little bones back here. True lumbar vertebrae in this guy. It's got um, no ribs back there to allow flexion in the, um, the lumbar region. Has a very erect posture. Let me show you this really cool video. This was found in uh, the Crew Basin, South Africa. That's a burrow, and it's got a thrinaxodon, this guy, in it, but it's also got an amphibian. They were just hanging out together in a burrow. They got buried that way. Um, I don't know what the evolutionary story is for this, that they just crawled in the same thing and died or something like that. Um, you could imagine some potential uh, flood scenarios where one of these animals had made that burrow and then the other one ran in there for cover, right? And they both got buried. There's all kinds of things we can speculate on, but not really the point. I just thought it was cool to, to see those two skeletons laying there together like that. But here's where things really start to get interesting. This is Probanonathus. By the way, my last skull I'm going to pull out. There he is. Itty-bitty guy. Look how tiny. Really, really small. Okay? This lower jaw is almost entirely one bone, the dentary. If you look back to the screen, you can see the blue there is all dentary. There's only the inside of the lower jaw right here, and at the very back, there's a, all those little bones are crammed in there. And... In the evolutionary story, what happens is, if you look at a reptile or an amphibian, um, their lower jaw, the bone that makes up the jaw joint is called the articular. And it articulates in the upper, um, the skull part with the quadrate. So you have a quadrate articular jaw joint. In mammals, we have a serangular, sorry, what am I saying? A dentary squamosal jaw joint. Dentary and squamosal. We have a different jaw joint. Don't worry about the names. Our jaw joint's different. This animal has two jaw joints on each side. It has an articular quadrate and a squamosal dentary. And that's pretty wild, right? And that's exactly what an evolutionist would expect. Is if an animal is evolving from one jaw joint to another, hey, what if there were an animal that had both? And there is. And actually several animals that have both. And so maybe you're starting to get a little bit of a picture of why they believe this, why they suggest this idea. Let's go to even more mammal-like, to our basal mammalia forms. These things are essentially mammals. If, you had, if I had been giving this lecture back in the 70s or something, I would have called these mammals. I wouldn't have been born. We wouldn't have had this building. I mean, anyway, you know, imagine we were there. They would call these things mammals. They had fur, definitely. There are fossils that show the fur, 
right there, zoomed in. You can see all kinds of little follicles and everything in the fur. Clearly a mammal um, in the way we typically think about it. But the posture is still somewhat sprawling, kind of like a platypus. Um, and they looks like they most likely had milk. The way we know that is from the teeth of this guy, Morganucodon, the way they shed their teeth, looks like that they would have had um, been producing milk originally. Now, you say, okay, you just showed me some little mammal things with kind of funny postures. What's the big deal? Let's look at the jaws and ears of these things. So there's a really um, fantastically preserved fossil from China called Yanoconodon. Here's the skeleton. That's a penny. It's not a giant penny. It's a very small animal, okay? Um, and you can see there's its tail, legs, there's the trunk, there are the arms again, and then there's the skull. When they looked in detail at the lower jaw of this creature, they saw some interesting stuff. So this first jaw here is Morganucodon. I'm just going to put the names up there. You might know what a platypus is. It's the guy I showed earlier that was sad because he actually lays eggs, even though other mammals give birth to live young. Um, this is the ear of a platypus, the ear bones. That's what they look like. This is the ear bone of a Yanoconodon. Okay, kind of looks like what you'd expect. It's a mammal. This is the ear bone of Morganucodon, which is a mammalia form. Um, the evolutionary model, not quite a true mammal yet. But here's what's really interesting. These ear bones are attached to the lower jaw. So this is, let me put up the names of here again. That's Yonoconodon. If you look down on the lower jaw, it's got Meckel's cartilage, which has been ossified, turned into bone, to attach the ear bones to the jaw. That is the evolutionary story of where ear bones came from. So when the evolutionists found this fossil, they were super excited, right? This is the fossil we've been looking for, the one that shows the ear bones are moving from the jaw. All those little bones at the back of the jaw, they didn't disappear. They became the inner ear bones of mammals. That's what the evolutionists say. And so they look like they've got the fossil right here to show it. And actually, here's our platypus again, this one, but an embryonic platypus, you can see that the ear bones grow out from the jaw. And so an evolutionist looks at that and they say, aha, this is a, you ready for a fancy phrase? Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. In other words, let me give it to you in English. When an animal's developing as an embryo, it goes through stages of its evolution that it would have in the past. Okay? You may have heard of the human embryos doing that kind of thing before, um, an evolutionary model. And so they're saying, look, that's exactly what we see. And so let me give you the big picture here. I don't expect you to read these names. What I expect you to see here is you're moving from less mammal-like to more mammal-like over time. And it's consistent. And so an evolutionist looks at that and they say, yeah, this is the crown jewel of evolution. You want an excellent example of one big type of animal turning into one other big type of animal? I've got it for you right here. So now what? Right? That's what you're all wondering. I'm not going to end the presentation right there. That will be awful. Wouldn't be encouraging for you at all. I mean, at least the parts about God's creation being glorious and wonderful and showing his power and might and glory and intelligence would be great. But what do I do with these things? Okay, well, let's think through the possibilities. What could we do? We could deny it. We could say, oh, the fossils aren't real. Or they aren't real animals. Or the whole thing is fake. But you know what? There's thousands of therapsid fossils out there found on multiple continents. Look at this. I know that probably doesn't look like much. It's like it's a rock and then a drawing of a rock. Yeah, oh, see all those little black dots? See those things up there? Those are footprints from little itty-bitty therapsids. Guys probably even smaller than this one. They went around walking around. A whole bunch of them were running around on the slab of rock. No one knows why. Um, it got turned into rock. I guess they were in sediment originally. It turned into rock. And we got their footprints. So if the fossils aren't real, you'd also have to say that nothing ever left these footprints. And that would be kind of a strange way to live, right? Imagine if we were walking around outside and we saw a dead raccoon on the side of the road. And I said, somebody placed that there, right? Or that just popped into existence right there. You'd be like, what's the matter with you, right? Or if we're walking along the beach and there were footprints there, I'd be like, oh, the waves caused that. Or, oh no, those aren't footprints. It's just the way it grows out of the sand. You'd be like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Yeah, well, we should extend that knowledge to the fossil record as well. Those are real footprints, so real animals made them. I think that's a reasonable jump to make. So I don't think denying is the right solution. So let's add another possibility. We could hide. Oops. Oh, I just hid that. 
totally unintentional. There you go. We could hide. Okay. I looked up like on the internet, I just typed in like bad at hide and seek or something. And there's all these pictures of dogs that are really bad at hiding. So there you go. Something good out of the internet. Um, we could just say, yeah, I know it looks like evolution, but it can't be. So I'll just pretend it's not there. Or I'll just build a shield around myself so I don't hear about it, right? Or maybe what we can do is if, if we just make fun of the evolutionists because it sounds silly, then we don't have to worry about it. Now listen, none of those are good alternatives, okay? If all we do is hide, guess what? This problem never gets addressed. We'll have no better answers. And if our goal is just to make the other side look silly and not talk about this, let me tell you something. I thought Dr. Mortensen's point in the, the very first talk was, was excellent about how people are leaving the church because we're not teaching them the truth in our churches. We're not preparing them. And so they're going to college and they're being misled. But you know what else you can do? You can teach them the truth, but if you, if you make straw man arguments, if you make the other side look silly and, oh, they don't have real evidence, they don't really have things to back up their beliefs, you can do the exact same thing to your child or your grandchild. And they go off to college and they take a class at a secular university and they say, that looks like evolution. Why did my parents lie to me? That is not what you want to happen. You don't want that to happen at all. So I don't think this is the right solution either. So what can we do? We can do what we always do or should always do. We can trust God right? We can trust God's word. Listen to me. I'm going to say something that may surprise you, being a scientist. We don't have to know everything in science to be faithful Christians, okay? We need to know his word. We need to know it really well. But you know, when Job—I was so glad that read from Job this, just before this—when Job asks God, right? Job begs with God, why am I suffering? What's going on? I've been blameless, Right? And I've got my friends here telling me I'm a wicked, evil person. I haven't been doing these things. What's going on? And then God shows up in chapter 38. We read some of that today. And you think like, yes, God's going to explain it. And he never tells Job why he's suffering. Never answers his question. Doesn't tell him about the whole thing with Satan. Because listen, that is not what Job needed to hear. It's what he thought he needed to hear, but it's not what he needed to hear. What he needed to hear was exactly what God gave him. He needed to hear what? That God is in control, that he's sovereign, that he's just, and that he's loving. That's what Job needed to hear. Listen to me. You don't have to know what to do with Yanukonadon or any of these other things to be a fruitful messenger for the kingdom of God. Do you know what you need? You need to know that God loved you so much that he sent his only son to die in your place, to take on your sins the punishment you deserved, and to raise from the dead, showing his power for eternal life for all who repent and believe in him. That is what you need to hear. And that is our starting place. We depend on scripture, and we know scripture is clear about the origins of animals and of people. Right? That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us God specially created man. He specially created man separate from other animals, and he specially created different kinds of animals. So what should we do? We've got scripture saying one thing, and it looks like at first glance the science is saying something else. What should you do? Well, let me give you three things to start with. You need to be honest. Listen, if somebody asks you something and you don't know the answer, do you know what the right thing to do is? It's to say, I don't know. That's what you should do. When, when Jesus was asked, when is your return? He said, even the Son of Man doesn't know. He didn't just make something up. You've got to be honest. Now, you can always tell the person, hey, I'll look into it. I'll go to some of these great resources the Answers in Genesis has, but you know what? Right now, I don't know because you're not going to help anyone by faking it. It's important that we are clear with people about what we know, what we think we know, and what we don't know. And you need to clearly articulate that to the people you know. So be honest. Secondly, we need to be humble. Oops, I did it again. We need to be humble. We read from 1 Peter 3.15 during one of Dr. Mortensen's talks. 
Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. But we often stop right there. And that's not what the verse ends. You got to keep reading. Yet with gentleness and reverence. You shouldn't be yelling at people or getting angry with people over creation evolution issues. Over any issue, right? Why are you a Christian? Why are you a young earth creationist? Is it because you're smarter than other people? Because I'm smarter than other people? No. If you're a Christian, it's because God changed your heart. He rescued you from the domain of darkness. If you're a creationist, it's because God's opened up his word to you and you're seeking to understand his word and you're assuming the word is an authority. Listen, we would not have figured all this stuff out if God didn't give us his special revelation. And listen to me, that means there is no room for pride. There is no room for pride among the followers of Jesus. So we need to be humble. And finally, we need to be patient. Listen to me. We don't have all the answers right now. Okay? You know what that means? You have to wait. You have to wait for good creationist scientists to do the hard work, the in-depth research, to understand these things. So what practical steps can you do while you're waiting? Because it's hard to wait. I get that. You're at CVS, and you're waiting for your medication, and there's like 30 people in line, right? It's difficult to wait. What do you do? Let me tell you. You pray. Pray for creationist organizations. Pray specifically for the scientists out there doing the research. Pray that God would show them things. Pray that they would see things. Pray they would understand and communicate it. Number two, you could do science. Yeah, you could become a scientist. Or if you have a job and you want to keep that job, you could encourage other people. Students, people in your church, young people who are growing up, and they say, I really like stars. I really like dinosaurs. I really like engineering. Then, yeah, push them into that. Encourage them to stay faithful to the text of Scripture, faithful to Christ, and pursue those things. And then third, you can stay informed. Try and stay involved and updated on the latest things in creation science. There's all these great websites out there. We've just been talking about Answers in Genesis and the Answers magazine. Could you imagine if I ended my talk right now? That was it. Here's a problem. No, I'm not going to end it there. Because let me tell you something. Your patience has in part begun to pay off. So I had a student at Masters, still have her, she's still there, and she took my vertebrate paleontology class. No interest in fossils before this. She took physics with me, and wanted to take vertebrate paleontology. I said, great. We take it. She says, I want to do research with you. That's something you can do at master's. And so I said, what do you want to research? And she says, I want to understand the reptile to mammal transition. I want answers for that. I said, okay, let's dive into it. So we have now published, you can see the screen. There's the Creation Biology Society annual conference. And if we put that up there, um, done by the, the journal Creation Theology and Science. And we have been publishing abstracts. We've been doing research. We've done now four different projects looking at these animals, looking at this transition. And today I want to share with you some of the things we're finding. And I'm excited to share it with you because I think it's encouraging. All right. We talked about baromenology before really briefly. As I told you before, this is the study of created kinds. But you know how things are in science. This is the kind of thing you get. What does that mean? You know, like, look at this. Why can't scientists make better looking plots? Okay. I'm not going to give you a crash course in baromenology. We don't have the time for that kind of thing. What I'm going to show you is what this means. I'll go ahead and put the other one up there too. Oh, no, not. Just kidding. Okay. In the evolutionary model, there should be a continuous series from pelicosaur to mammal. And you should not see any breaks in that series. What you should see is just one flowing, continuous stream. And that's what they'll say. They'll say, you can't make a dividing line. You can't carve these up into groups. But we believe that there are separately created kinds of animals. And so what we might expect to see, what we should expect to see when we look at animals, is what we call discontinuity. 
separations between created kinds. We should see continuity within a created kind. The animals are all similar to each other. They share a common ancestor. And we should see discontinuity around the created kind. Not going to mistake a dog for a walrus or a dog for a piranha or something. And so when we did our analyses, we plugged it into the computer, it popped out, and lo and behold, this is just cynodonts and mammaliaforms, we had four boxes. Not one big continuous series. It wasn't a continuous series. Here it is in what we call multidimensional scaling. The closer something clusters with something else, the more similar it is. And guess what? These animals broke up into at least three clusters, maybe four. And they were kind of predictable. And the ones that were like mammals are right here, mammal-like most group, and they were separate from the other cynodonts, from things that look like they're evolving different types of jaws and palates. They were actually separate created kinds. And as I looked into the literature more, I was really impressed to see in the evolutionary literature, people are talking about discontinuity. They're not saying it in those words, but they're thinking about it. There's a really fascinating paper by T.S. Kemp, who's one of the the specialists on these animals. And he said, look, let's look at the fossil record for these things in a minute. And I showed you guys something like this earlier in the last talk. It's not working well because it's white. Um, You see how on the left side there, we've got these bars going down. That's the range of an animal, um, how far they find its fossils. All of the, look at the two second ones, the ones say Russia and South Africa. Those are all our therapsid animals. Guess what? They basically all pop up at the exact same spot in time, suddenly. And he argued in his paper, he said, therapsida at its base is an unresolved polytomy. You say, what does that mean? Here's what he's saying. We cannot make an evolutionary tree for the bottom, the the root of therapsida. It's impossible, he said, because they evolve so fast. There's no way to do it. He said, actually, this is in his paper. He said, this is a lot like the Cambrian explosion. This is a lot like the Paleogene mammal explosion, which are the two things I talked to you about earlier. And this is an evolutionist saying this. I was impressed. I was like, wow, yeah. And he he shows with their skulls. He says, there's completely different jaw musculature. These couldn't quickly have evolved one from the other. They have to have separate ancestors or some kind of ancestral form we don't know. And so the only group he was willing to say the relationships for were these two. He said, I'm pretty sure cynodonts come out of therosophilians, but the rest of it is a mess. And no one will sort it out because they evolved so fast. Let me give you another solution. These are actually separate created kinds of things. They didn't evolve from each other. And the reason we're finding sudden appearance of them is that's when their environment got buried during the flood. The place where they lived got buried. And so when we look at this therapsid tree I showed you earlier, through baromenology, we've been able to cut this thing up. Where do we see the discontinuity? And guess what? It's gone. There's no longer a continuous sequence from one thing to another. And that's pretty cool. I was super excited to find this. And we ran all these groups, everything we could find, and consistently we were getting that pattern. Now, we could stop there and we could say, hey, that's cool. Okay, let's all go have a break. But there's some fundamental questions we still don't have answers to. For instance, if they are separate created kinds, why do they look transitional? Why do I find an animal that looks like it's got a jaw and then a um, little bit higher up, I find one that's got a jaw with less bones there and more ear bones? Why do I find that? Well, I think part of the problem rests in our assumptions about the way life is organized. Let me show you. If you look at vertebrate animals today, you have birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, fish. Okay, I'm never going to look at a pelican and think, am I sure that's not a fish? That's not going to happen, right? I'm not going to look at a dog and be like, that might be an amphibian. No, they're very, very separate animals. And those are the animals we have alive today. And so we expected that when we looked at the fossils, they would fall into one of those categories. And then we were shocked initially when they didn't. 
In fact, what you see are animals that look like they're in between reptiles and birds, look like they're in between reptiles and mammals, look like they're in between reptiles and amphibians, look like they're between amphibians and fish. Now, as an evolutionist, I could look at that and say, yeah, I see an evolutionary tree, right? Going from fish to amphibians to reptiles and then splitting off to birds and mammals. But what else could it be? Maybe what we're seeing is a bigger design picture that's at work than what we previously knew. Maybe we've been classifying animals wrongly, and that's what's not allowing us to think straight. Sometimes we get so afraid of saying anything that sounds like evolution that we can't accurately picture what's going on here. Let me give you an example. When people first discovered chimpanzees in the 1500s, they weren't scared that, uh, oh no, everyone's going to think it's evolution. Nobody was thinking about evolution, right? They're just like, wow, that's cool. It's a monkey that kind of looks more like a person than the other monkeys I know. That's all they thought. And it's okay. And they weren't bothered by it at all. It's only now suddenly that we're really bothered by, wow, that chimpanzee kind of looks like a person. No, it's fine. There's still a clear line of discontinuity between people and animals. That's not an issue. And at this zoomed out scale, if we show it up there again, it looks like everything's continuous. But you know what? When you zoom in, the divisions are really apparent. Let's use mammals as an example. This is a bat. This is a whale. That's a red panda. That's a wombat. I will never mistake a whale for a bat or a bat for a red panda or a red panda for a wombat. Now, I know wombat has the word bat in it, but it is not a bat, okay? Clearly, look at that thing. It's too cute to be a bat. No, bats are cute too. I don't, but I mean, yeah. okay. So anyway, um, now listen, mammal is a real group, right? I can look at mammals and I listed a bunch of features, right? They all have fur. They give birth to live young. They produce milk. They have this erect posture, all this stuff we talked about. And yet, within the group, I can still point out individual groups of discontinuity-bounded groups. And when you think about the creation account, right, it says he made birds on day five. Well, there were different kinds of birds, yet all birds kind of look the same in one sense, right? But they're very different in another sense. I can still point out different types of birds. And in Leviticus, it lists a bat as a type of bird. You might be like, bats aren't birds. Well, yeah, but at their definition, it was just anything that flew. They call it a bird, and that's good enough. Now, let's go back to this again. What happens if we add fossil mammals to this picture? Guess what? The picture really doesn't change. It's just more diversity we didn't know was there. You still have very separate created kinds. And even when I add in these mammal-like reptiles, I can still see groups bounded by discontinuity. Yes, I can see a big continuous thing if I want. And in fact, the ancients used to talk about the great continuum of life. They believed that God would fill every possible thing that could exist. But I can also see exactly what the Bible teaches me, that there are, in fact, separate created kinds of animals. Let's move to our conclusions. What did we learn? Well, there are different created kinds of mammal-like reptiles. Absolutely. That's where the science looks like it's leading us in the baremonology. And we don't need to be scared of animals that look transitional. There's no reason God can't make a fish that kind of looks like it has legs. He can do what he wants. He's God. That doesn't mean that it evolved that way. It just means we didn't know what all was out there before. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And in the same lens, we don't need to be scared of scientific discoveries. Why don't we need to be scared? Because we have the truth. We have the foundation we need to go out there and investigate the world. Now, we need to be well-grounded in this, right? We need to know what this says. We need to believe what this says. But if you do that, yeah, you can go out to a museum and not be scared, because if you're prepared with the word, if you're prepared with good creationist resources, like we've been talking about this whole conference, you can go to a museum and say, yeah, I know that sign says millions of years, but I don't think that's actually what it means. And I can enjoy what God has made and not be afraid of it. We have some friends, our, our um, family friends. Um, they, their kid loved animals, would watch these animal documentaries. But anytime the documentary said millions of years, he'd go up and turn off the TV. It's like, well, you never get to finish the documentary, right? You don't get to learn about all the other wonderful things God made. That's the world we live in. You have to deal with the fact that the world believes something different, but we can move out in confidence. I want to show you this thing right here. This is from this year. They found a 
tritilodont, cynodont, and it had, it looked like 38 babies with it. That's a lot of babies. A lot of babies. But they said, look, these animals, there's no way they're giving birth to live young. Those have got to be eggs. That was an interesting discovery made. And they, they started to look into it more, and they found some things that at first glance looked more in favor of evolution as I was reading the paper, but they found other things that look like they're really good evidence for creation. We don't have to be scared. They're going to find what they're going to find, and we can go and look and be amazed at God's creation and move out in confidence from his word, get good resources, and head out. And we need to recognize that God's creations, past, present, and future, declare his glory in a magnificent way. Don't lose sight. Don't lose the forest through the trees. God's creation is wonderful. It is marred by sin. Yes, there is a curse, but he still shows his wonders everywhere we look. And we can praise him, and that's what they're there for, is to give him glory. This is one of the reasons I love being not only a paleontologist, but I love being a teacher. Because when I get up in the classroom, and I know these students have no idea what I'm about to show them. They don't even know this thing is out there. And they look at it, and they're like, wow, God made that? That's the God we serve? That's so cool. I take them out in nature, and we go for walks, we go for hikes. And I think that's why they like the class, because they do less, you know, in class time. But, but they enjoy it because we point out things, and they're like, yeah, I never would have noticed that if you hadn't been there to show me how that particular thing expresses the glory of God. We need to take that back. There's too many, um, well, I don't want to say stop them, but, um, you know, the documentaries you watch on PBS, on National Geographic, that kind of stuff, they're cool. But they're always from an evolutionary lens, right? But how cool would it be to have creationist stuff that piques our curiosity? Creationist stuff that makes us want to love God more. And that's what the creation should do for us. And that's one of the great things about Masters University. We are all about promoting God through his word. And his word tells us that the creation declares his glory, and you can see it everywhere you look. But if you want a better understanding of that, a Christian school like Master's is a fantastic place. Really, really is. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these wonderful creatures you made that we can look and study and be amazed at them. But more importantly, I thank you for the wonderful creatures you've made in this room. People. People who are created in your image. Who can learn about these things. And Lord, we recognize that we didn't just happen by chance. That we didn't just evolve over time into to something that can study other things, but we recognize that your handiwork is in us in an incredibly special way. A way that's not in these therapsids, a way that's not in the trees we see around us or the rocks or anything. A way that's incredibly special and unique. Lord, help us to see that even though you have created us in a special, unique, beautiful way, we are marred by sin. that we willfully commit sins. We transgress your law. We know you are perfect and you are holy. And Lord, we recognize that we deserve to be sent to hell, to be punished for all eternity. And Father, I pray that you would show those in here who, ha- who do not yet know you, that they might be transformed by your glory. And for those who do know you, that may be continually transformed, not in a first sense, not in a, an initial salvific sense, but in a sense of recognizing your greatness, that they might live lives that are holy and pleasing to you. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.